Uh, so as many of you are aware, Matt uh, and I and Kristen, who is not with us today, she's out of town. Uh, we've been meeting in the Tannis' basement, uh, sort of like underground church, literally underground church style for music over the past uh, few weeks. Um, kind of sneaking in at night and parking not at the Tannis' and carpooling over. Yeah, it's been a whole whole shebang going on. But if you're if, if you notice in particular, um, when the music portion of our service is done, usually Matt's screen goes black and you don't uh, see us again for a while. Um, well, that's because uh, Tannis' have kids and with a few kids and a few adults, it can be kind of hard to all sit in front of a screen in a way that doesn't create a lot of distractions, I guess is probably a, a good word. Um, and maybe, you know, you with young children, or maybe if you are, you know, are a kid, you understand like it's hard to sit still for that long. I get it. I have a hard time sitting still too. Um, especially when there's a camera on you, right? I mean, you want to wave at the camera and say hi. Well, in order to limit distractions, you know, we usually hide our screen for the last, you know, part of the service or the sermon and everything, just like many of you are right now, even though I trust you're still listening, you know, I can't, I can't see you all. Uh, but a couple of weeks ago during our, our preaching portion, um, the, the youngest of the, the Tannis kids uh, went upstairs, uh, kind of quietly, didn't really notice anything. And then a few minutes left passed and just as inconspicuously as he left, he came back down. And however, we noticed that there was like a, a foreign substance or something maybe on his face, someone pointed it out. And then, you know, one of the other uh, Tannis kids was like, oh, I'm going to run upstairs and see what was going on. You know, where, where, where's this, what's the mystery of the, you know, the foreign substance on, on the face? And it was determined that Liam had found a box of donuts on the kitchen counter and he had made sure that he had tested each one of them and uh, he was thoroughly happy with himself. Um, so when, when he was accused of like, you ate three whole donuts, he sheepishly held up his fingers and said, no, I ate two. So he ate two donuts and a few bites of some more um, while uh, the sermon was, was taking place. Um, needless to say, there were a few laughs, and uh, we got back to paying attention as quickly as we could, but the, the distractions, right? Um, so that's a cute story, and uh, about a boy got into a box of donuts, but I think it actually tells us about something about us as people. Uh, in the story I just mentioned from a couple weeks ago, Liam desired something sweet to eat, and he got a stool and saw some donuts on the counter and climbed up on the stool and got into the donuts, right? He knew what he wanted, he looked for it, and he got it. Um, the same desire can be seen in our own lives. Um, <clears throat> while we may have graduated from sneaking donuts from the kitchen, or you know, maybe we're not sneaking around the, you know, trying to get into the cookie jar, or whatever the case, right? We've, we've moved up from that. We are still guilty of fulfilling desires above our, all else. We're still guilty of fulfilling what we want, um, before anything else, we subconsciously seek out our deepest cravings in order to satisfy our natural tendency to want what we deem best for ourselves. That, that, that's, our, that's our natural desire. We want to find what we desire and get it. Uh, Paul aptly described this condition in his letter to the Romans. Uh, he said these words, for I do not understand my actions, for I do, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. And that's in Romans 7, verse 15. He, he's expressing this conflict of interest that he has. He knows what he should do, but his body's saying, I want something else. And he keeps finding himself gravitating towards the thing that he naturally desires. Uh, you see, I left, out about, I left out a critical portion about our desires. They are sinful. 
right? Our natural desires are self-seeking, desire-driven, and lust longing. There is nobody that desires righteousness, righteousness, no, not one. We all seek after that which is wrong. Um, back in January of this year, Christ Fellowship, we went through a uh, month-long study about fixing our eyes on him. Maybe you remember that, maybe you don't. Um, we focused on a commitment to the word. Uh, another sermon was dependent and audacious prayer. A third, running hard after purity. And fourth, we were seeking and being open to accountability. Those are four of the four of the themes that we went through back in January. Uh, I, I personally grew from that series and was encouraged by it. And I thought it was a really appropriate way to start off the year. You know, even it was 2020 and Dan said, you know, innocently that he didn't, he kind of forgot it was 2020. It wasn't a play on words there, but I thought it was a good way to start any year, just fixing our, our eyes on him. Um, and this morning as Dale and uh, Stinson's are traveling, I believe back from Tennessee, um, we're taking a break from our study in Second Corinthians. I wanted to recall to our minds the same theme that we explored a few months ago, fixing our eyes on him. Um, I know at least for myself, there have been instances already in the almost five completed months that we're through this year where my eyes were looking everywhere but to Christ. Right? I, felt, I filled my mind with other things other than the Spirit. Um, I have worshipped things more than the Creator. Uh, so maybe I'm alone in this category, but I wanted to take this morning to review this theme and just see how, how we're doing at this. How are we doing at fixing our eyes on Him? So we're going to be looking at a portion of the 119th Psalm, as uh, Chris already mentioned, um, particularly verses 33 through 40. You want to turn there in your copy of Scripture, uh, electronic device, whatever that may be. I came across this passage a uh, week and a half, two weeks ago, and I was really struck by the connection to this, this sermon series. Uh, back in January. As has already been illustrated by Liam, we all look for what we desire. That is our natural tendency. What we desire is what we seek. That leads us to the main point that we uh, are going to explore this morning, which is this. We look for what we desire. When we desire God, we will look for understanding of his ways in order to gain the life we desperately crave. I'll read that again. When we desire God, we will look for understanding of his ways in order to gain the life that we desperately crave. Uh, so let's go ahead and read through our passage this morning. I trust that you're in uh, Psalm 119, looking at verse 33. And then after I'm finished reading through it, I'll go ahead and pray for us and that the Spirit would move and lead us to a greater understanding of God and this passage of his word. Psalm 119, verse 33 reads, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies, and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things, and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise, that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts, and your righteousness give me life. Let's go ahead and bow before the Lord as we dive into our, our message this morning. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time. Thank you for this body of believers that has been faithful to meeting together, even uh, despite the obstacles and the difficulties of um, social distancing and regulations imposed by our government. And we just thank you for the safety that our body has experienced. We pray that you will continue to protect us. Uh, thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity that I have to have studied uh, God's word and present it to our, my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning. Um, I pray that you would use my lips 
and my mind and my speech to edify uh, our church, that we would grow from recalling the importance that we fix our eyes on you, and that we would leave prepared to enter this, this week and these upcoming days and weeks ahead with a desire to look to you at all times. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So while studying this passage in preparation for the sermon, I found myself categorizing the, the verses into three, uh, three different subgroups. Uh, and these groups will serve as our main points this morning. Uh, our main point, again, is when we desire God, we will look for understanding of his ways in order to gain the life we desperately crave. In, in two words, desire God. That's what we're looking at this morning. How do we desire God? What does that mean? And before we get to our first point, I want to clarify an assertion uh, that I'm making when I'm speaking on this topic of desire, right? So here, disclaimer. The fact that we are gathered together, uh, despite difficulties, despite obstacles, despite you know all being muted and all being in our homes and being on, on Zoom and not in our, our normal meeting place, the fact that we're all here together is indicative that we desire God, right? You, you, you don't show up at, at a church body without some form of curiosity or desire to learn more about God. Um, as believers, we have declared that we are God's children and that we are desirous to grow in him and bear his name to the world around us. Uh, being a Christian does not mean desiring God will always come naturally or that it will manifest, manifest itself easily in our lives. At least that's not always the case for me, um, just as it was not the case always for the Apostle Paul, nor is it the case, as we'll see today, for the author of Psalm 119. Uh, therefore, I think it's safe to say that we are a group of people who desire God. I mean, we would all say, like, yeah, I desire God, but we struggle to fix our eyes on him. So that's the assertion I'm making with that disclaimer in mind. I believe that these aforementioned three points we're going to look at will help us better understand the main point. And as we recall, the importance and blessings of earnestly desiring God. Uh, so let's go ahead and dive in. Our, our first point is this. We must acknowledge our own inability and set a goal. We must acknowledge our own inability and set a goal. Uh, that we find here in verses 33 through 34. So we'll go ahead and reread those. Uh, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Have you ever considered how much you reveal about yourself when you ask a question? For example, if you were to go down to downtown Madison and approach any random person and ask, are you single? What would that imply about yourself? All right, a couple things. One, I think it'd be reasonable, we could reasonably assume that you're probably single yourself and you're actively looking to not be single any longer. Number two, you have demonstrated that you are not one to beat around the bush. You are gonna get what you want and nothing's stopping you. And number three, you reveal that you're most likely attracted to this random person, which can be both flattering and flat out creepy. Okay, so all of that because of a three word question. Are you single? That, that teaches us a lot about a person. Our questions, what we ask, that's, that's, a, that's a odd example, right? I understand that not all questions show that much. You know, what's for dinner isn't as indicative maybe as are you single, I understand that. But questions reveal, about us as people. And there are more observations we can make, but moving on, we see that these are totally and quite accurate assertion, assertions to make about you know, somebody asking that question. Um, and here in these two verses, the psalmist is asking for something and we can learn about the psalmist and about the situation by looking at what he is requesting. 
he is asking for God to teach him. The, the psalmist, who was uh, perhaps King David himself, as some scholars have noted, would have been surrounded by prophets, regardless of who the psalmist was. He would have been surrounded by prophets and those teaching um, the law and the commandments to him. But yet, notice that the, the author does not request uh, private lessons with a priest. He, he does not go directly to a, to a prophet to seek knowledge. No, he goes directly to God. The psalmist's request reflects his own inability. Uh, he recognized that he cannot understand God's ways apart from aid from God himself. He's not going to, you know, some secondary source, right? He's not going to, you know, the customer service team. He's going straight to the manager. He's going straight to the CEO. He's going straight to the greatest being of all time, God Almighty. Um, he, the psalmist recognizes that he cannot understand God's ways apart from his own and this demonstrates implicit dependence on his creator, right? Like he recognizes, hey, I can't get this from anywhere else. God, I'm coming directly to you. Uh, Spurgeon noted that this verse, uh, about this verse, he said this, uh, what condescension is it on our great Jehovah's part that he deigns to teach those who seek him? Um, in other words, how marvelous is it that God does not exalt himself to a position that is untouchable, but rather to a place of, an ex of accessibility, right? God does not remove himself from us to some high lofty place where we can't reach him. Rather, he has lowered himself by sending Christ and as we'll continue to study in this message, he has placed himself in a position where we can come to him and seek this knowledge and seek this understanding. Uh, the psalmist goes on to ask for understanding to accompany the teaching that he requests. So in verse 34, we see, give me understanding. Uh, understanding is knowledge applied. It is one thing to score well on a standardized test it is another thing to take information from a standardized test and become the CEO of a multi-million dollar company, right? Knowledge versus knowledge applied, those are two different things. Um, as Christians, our ability to understand God and his ways is compounded by the presence of sin in our lives. So not only do we have a natural difficulty to apply what we learn, we have a difficulty because we are plagued by sin. And that is why we must acknowledge our inability to understand, just as the psalmist does here. We can't begin to cultivate a desire for God until we first acknowledge our inability to seek him apart from him. Uh, our first point also carries with it the idea of setting a goal. I remember we're trying to get to the point where we desire God so much so that we look to understand his ways and gain the life that we crave. That's what we're looking for. So that's where, why we need to set a goal. Uh, now that we've acknowledged our own inability, we need to determine where we're going. What's our direction? Now, here's a profound truth. If we want to desire God, then we need to set a goal of desiring God. Okay, wait, that's not really a profound truth. That sounds like the same sentence repeated two different ways. So it's not, okay, it's not, not particularly deep. I get that. But notice the language of the psalmist here in these two verses. In verse 33, he vows to keep God's statutes until the end. In verse 34, he promises to keep the law and observe it wholeheartedly. These are the goals he is setting for himself. However, we must remember that these goals are not the psalmist merely setting his mind to it. This isn't just him saying, I'm going to reach these goals by raw determination and brute force. These goals can only be attained by the enabling power of God. Uh, John Calvin says about verse 33 that the spirit of understanding comes from above. It is a gift of God that we are able to read his word, that we will understand his word, 
And that is why we must simultaneously acknowledge our insufficiency while also setting a goal of deserving God to the point that we will wholeheartedly observe God's law and keep it to the end. In order to desire God, we have to set that as our goal. God in his kindness is ready and willing to teach and impart to us understanding of who he is. But he can only do so when we humble ourselves and approach him with a willing, malleable spirit. So this first point begs the question, are we willing to set aggressive goals for ourselves? Right? Do we actually desire to keep God's statutes to the end? Not just keep them some of the time or keep them for a week keep them to the end or do we set easy goals for ourselves that give us a sense of accomplishment but actually do little to grow our faith right you know do we say you know i do this little bit and that's good enough look at me i set a goal and i kept it okay you know great i can set a goal of you know whatever the case right i, I can set a goal of spending 10 minutes on a day on my phone on facebook right but that doesn't mean that it's helping me in any way just because you're setting a goal doesn't mean in and of itself it's getting us to where we need to go um, we need to set aggressive goals for ourselves. Uh, in a sermon preached at this year's uh, Passion Conference, uh, John Piper said this, that if you have no desire, you will see no results in the context of desiring God. If you have no desire, you will see no results. I would take that a, another step and just reword it to say, if you have half-hearted desires, then you'll see minimal results. Uh, God desires and deserves nothing short of our wholehearted commitment to his ways. So are we willing to set aside pride to acknowledge our plight and prioritize desiring him above all else? So again, that's our first point. Um, we must acknowledge and set a goal of desiring God. So number two, having done that, we must repent and reverse our course of direction. Uh, before we expound on what that means, uh, let's look at verse 35. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. We must repent and reverse our course of direction. Now we have to act upon our goal. It is not enough to simply admit one's inability and make a statement of good intentions. You know, how many times have someone said, oh, I'll promise to do that for you, I'll do this, and then they don't follow through, right? That, that means nothing. Hollow words are just that. They are hollow. Um, we must follow through and see to it that our desire for God becomes a reality. The desire is present, so now we must look to implement the understanding that was requested in verses 33 and 34. Uh, the imperatives in these three verses through uh, 35 through 37, these three imperative, imperative verbs here, they carry the idea of direction. Uh, we must reverse the course of our natural sin-bent minds if we are to truly desire God. Uh, the psalmist lists both the commandments and the testimonies of God that he desires, as well as the selfish and worthless things he wants to avoid. So he two contrasts here. So let's look first at those commandments and testimonies of God that he is he's looking for. What are these commandments and testimonies that the, the psalmist speaks of in verses 35 and 36? Uh, these are synonyms for of the statutes and the law that we mentioned in the two verses above. But we didn't really talk about those either. So what are they? What are the ways in verse 37 that grant us life? In all these instances, we could declare that this is the word of God. In what other place do we find the statutes, the laws, the commandments, and the testimonies of our Lord? Where else do we find that? First, it was the Pentateuch, and then came the Chronicles of the Kings with the history of Israel sprinkled in between. 
Uh, next, the wisdom literature was added, and then the prophets. We see a transition as we moved into the Gospels of Jesus Christ, and then the, the Acts of the Apostles, followed by epistles and letters written to churches as, as the church is developed and grown. And finally, we see the, the culmination of Christ's promise to return and defeat sin and death once for all. Right? That's moving, moving through Scripture. That, that, that's the Word of God. But the Word of God was not created once Revelation was complete around A.D. 95-ish, right? That's not, you know, God's Word wasn't established A.D. 95. No, the Word of God existed long before this. Uh, the Gospel of John makes this truth abundantly clear in the opening of his Gospel. If you want, you can turn there. I'll be reading um, portions of John in chapter 1. Um, so the Gospel of John in verse 1 of chapter 1 reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Moving to verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Then verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. Skipping down to verse 14, and the world became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Can you see it? Is it any stretch of the imagination to say that the statutes, the laws, the commandments, and the testimonies all refer to Jesus Christ? Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He is the way. The blood of a spotless lamb has been replaced with the unblemished blood of our perfect Savior, the cross in the wilderness has been manifested in the cross of Christ. The almost sacrifice of Abraham's son has been far surpassed by the atoning death of the Son of God, Jesus. What an incomparable, awe-inspiring truth this is. The psalmist saw godliness in the law. We see God godliness in Christ. We long for the same relationship with the same God, and we find that in the same word. It is the word of God that will cultivate our desire for him. We have no other recourse but to incline our heart toward it. While we've just reviewed a really exciting truth, you know, we, we, see that we see the word of God as preeminent both in the psalmist's life and in our life today. The psalmist also speaks of a sobering mindset that is necessary in order to change our direction and make true in our commitment to be desirous of God. Verse 36 speaks of avoiding selfish gain. And in verse 37, we see the plea for God to help us turn our eyes from looking at worthless things. It is this phrase here that specifically caught my attention when studying this passage, the idea of avoiding looking at worthless things. You see, even though we may desire something in our heart, our eyes can betray us and tempt us to replace that desire with something or someone else. How hard is it to be a Christian and profess our love for Christ when we've never seen him? I've never seen Jesus. I don't think any of us have. We've never seen God the Father. You know, we, we don't see the Holy Spirit. We have not seen in whom we believe. However, look at all the enticements of the world that are around us. Uh, it is, is it any wonder that we can falter in this area of seeking worthless things. We're surrounded by it. It is critical that we purposefully cast our eyes towards Jesus. We cannot close our eyes Rather, we must direct them to an object worthy of our desire and our priority. Uh, picture a goal that you desire, uh, any goal, right? Uh, perhaps you want to learn an instrument. Uh, maybe you want to run a 5K. Maybe you want to 
gain a particular trade skill or knowledge about something, whatever the case, pick or, picture something that you desire or maybe have desired at some point in your life as a goal for you, okay? So instead, instead of in your mind's eye picturing what you would need to do to make that goal happen, uh, instead I want you to picture what you would need to not do for that goal to happen. For example, if you want to learn an instrument, then you cannot skip practice times, right? You're not gonna grow if you don't practice. If you wanna run a 5K, you cannot only drink soda pop, right? You need to have some water in there. These are things you cannot do. For every goal you set, there is something you will have to sacrifice to see it accomplished. Whether that is time, whether that's money, something else, there's gonna be something that needs to be sacrificed. There are things you simply cannot do if you want to be successful in your goal. To desire something means that you will also despise something. To desire godliness means you will despise ungodliness. To desire Christ is to deny one's self. As we wrap up the second point, what are some of the worthless things that we find ourselves looking at? What are some habits that may need to be cast aside in order to achieve the goal of desiring God wholeheartedly? What is impeding our vision of Christ and hindering us from understanding his ways? Those are hard questions. I don't like them any more than you do. But what are some things, worthless things, that we find ourselves looking at that are not Jesus? Um, and that's what it means to repent, is identifying those things that are holding us down, that are weighing us down, and casting them aside so that we can freely look to Christ. Um, so we have seen that we need to acknowledge and set a goal for ourselves. Um, we've seen that we must repent and have a change of lifestyle. And now, number three, we must confirm the word in our lives. And we find this going through verses 38 through 40. So let's go ahead and read them. Uh, confirm to your servant your promise. Back in Psalms 119, verse 38. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. So at long last, we've arrived at our final point, right? Oof, almost done. We have acknowledged our inability. We've set a goal of desiring God above all else. We have seen Christ as the object of our desire, and we've repented of our self-centered vision. And now we conclude with the opportunity to confirm our identity in him. Verse 38 speaks of the affirmation that comes when we exercise a fear of God. This is not a fear in the sense of being afraid. Rather, it's an attitude of reverential respect for God. As he is faithful to complete the good work which he has begun in us, we will gain deeper appreciation for his being and his unfailing love. I personally really like verse 39. Uh, we saw that imperative turn back in verse 37, except here the usage takes on a little bit of a, a different flavor. Uh, the first time the psalmist was changing direction by turning from sin to the life found in God's ways. It was, it was turned in the sense of direction. Here in verse 39, the psalmist is pleading for God to turn away reproach. This is not the psalmist being selfish because he wants to avoid embarrassment. It's the exact opposite. He, he's turning away approach. He's trying to hide it. He's trying to bury reproach. He does not want reproach to be connected with him. The psalmist's desire for God and to heed God's ways is so strong that he cannot bear the thought of bringing blaspheme to the name of God. The psalmist is begging God to protect him from committing any act that could be used by the enemy to smear God's name in the dirt. 
right? This is what I mean. This is what the psalm the psalmist wants to be turned away from. He wants this reproach to be hidden. This is the same sort of desire that we find throughout Scripture and even in the in the history of Christianity. We see Daniel did not hide his daily prayers uh, in the face of capital punishment. Uh, Stephen did not pre cease to preach Christ despite blatant opposition from the Jewish uh, religious leaders. Uh, William Tyndale did not recant his faith when. Uh, recant his faith or deny the, the works that he did when translating uh, the scriptures into English. Jim Elliot did not hesitate to preach the gospel to the dangerous Aka Indians in Ecuador. Um, in the lives of these, these and many more, we see that the desire for God, desire to see God magnified above all else, superseded, superseded any fleshly inclination to do otherwise. These people did not want to bring shame to the name of God. They did not want their own fear, their fleshly desires for comfort, uh, the wanting to prolong their life here on earth. None of that did they allow to take the place of magnifying God and desiring him above all else. Their devotion to God and desire to keep his name spotless was evident in their lives. And it's the case with the psalmist here too. Uh, so lastly, we see a phenomenal act of God in verse 40. Uh, the, the psalmist unabashedly declares, I long for your precepts. We have come full circle. We have gone from acknowledgement to setting a goal, to repentance, to a change of direction, to confirmation, to a greater than ever before longing for God. This intimate desire for God is nothing short of a miracle. It is entirely unnatural and remarkably unique. Spurgeon says that he who has given us to desire will also grant us to obtain. The precepts are grievous are sorry, the precepts are grievous to the ungodly, and therefore when we are so changed to as to long for them, we have clear evidence of conversion. And we may safely conclude that he who has begun the good work will carry it on. What better way to show that we are Christ than to evidence his precepts and to long for them in our lives? What comfort comes from knowing that God is faithful to complete his good promise in us? Our longing for him will always be satisfied. The verse ends with the psalmist's desire for God's righteousness to be manifest in his life. As we saw with the statutes, commandments, and so forth that we studied a few minutes ago, we could infer righteousness here in verse 40 to be Christ-likeness. In Christ we have life, as Paul stated so clearly in Galatians 2 and verse 20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Remember, our main point, which is when we desire God, we will look for understanding of his ways in order to gain the life we desperately crave. Here we see that life sought after, accurately portrayed as the righteousness of God, which has been shed abroad within us. That life that we crave is right here. Spurgeon writes again that we need quickening every hour of the day, for we are so sadly apt to become slow and languid in the ways of God. It is the Holy Spirit who can pour a new life into us, let us not cease crying to him. Let the life we already possess show itself by longing for more. We long for a life worth living, and in the righteousness of Christ, we can find satisfaction for this craving. Before we leave this point, we must ask the question, when someone looks at us, do they see a people with eyes fixed on Jesus? Do they see a community where God's praise and Christ-likeness are desired above all else? Are we characterized by a fervent desire 
to keep God's name spotless and to make his name known to the world around us. So in conclusion, we have studied three points that all build upon our theme. Again, when we desire God, we will look for understanding of his ways in order to gain this life that we desperately crave. First, we acknowledge our own inability and we set a goal of desiring God above all else. Then we recognize Christ as the embodiment of our desire and repented of our self-centered vision. And then we confirmed our desire to see God exalted as we live out his righteousness. We've raised some difficult questions along the way. Um, and I know that they've been a challenge to me as I've prepared this message and studied this passage and been humbling as I've recognized areas in which I fall short. What an amazing thought that the testimonies and commandments cited by the psalmist anticipate the very word of God who came to earth in the form of Jesus. That is so cool. At the same time, it is sobering to realize how much we cast our eyes on things that are worthless in comparison to Christ. It is a challenge to recall the faithfulness of believers past and their desire to see God lifted high. And yet what a joy it is to relish in the righteous, godly living as God fulfills his promise in us. I found these words of John Calvin on Psalm 139 verse 40 to be a really appropriate ending to our study uh, this morning. Calvin says, Lord, this is now a remarkable kindness thou hast done, in, done me and having inspired me with a holy desire to keep thy law, one thing is still necessary, that this same virtue pervade my whole life. My hope and prayer for us as Christ Fellowship is that we would be a people with eyes fixed on him, that we'd be a church body desirous of God, of his word, and of his spirit provoking us to a life of righteousness. I'll go ahead and pray for us as we conclude our time together this morning. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your love. Thank you for the salvation granted to us in Christ. Thank you for the desire that has been planted within us by the Holy Spirit that uh, causes us to long for you. And I pray that that would be the case in each one of our lives, that we would be a, a church body characterized uh, by eyes fixed on you, longing for you, and uh, displaying Christ-likeness uh, to the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.